the world leader in Internet Talk Radio. Internet Talk Radio. You're listening to America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today my guest is Susie Vangelip. She is the author of a book called 52 Ways to Protect Your Teen. She's also a professional speaker, and um, she calls herself a life changer. And she um, does a wonderful program that she puts on for teens and has been doing since 1991. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Carol. Glad to be with you. You know, I don't know if um, <laughs> I, I know we haven't really talked about what we're going to be talking about today, which is how I like it, because I like it to be more spontaneous. But um, you may be surprised by the sort of the the angle or the tack that I would like to take, and that is um, not so much in terms of the actual theory, but um, the journey that your life has been um, coming from what, you know, where you were and where you were going and how things got twisted around and how you um, have been spending now so many years uh, devoted to trying to help teens um, because I think what this is is a model of what I sort of urge people to do, uh, <laughs> not every show, <laughs> but, uh, but a lot, um, and that is to, to, that it's never too late to um, guide your life to a higher purpose, to a, um, something that you can leave for this world that is increasingly in need of people leaving things to it, um, you know, something to help help the world sort of get back on its feet in a positive way. And if we were all doing things like you have uh, done in your life or are still doing, certainly, um, then then the world would be a better place. So it, besides telling us, I mean, I am, of course, very interested in um, what what the teenagers come up to you after your program and ask you about. Of course, we'll get into that in the second half of the show. But um, but really, how you went from someone who wasn't planning this on your agenda when you when you went to college to um, winding up devoting your life to uh, to trying to help change people, make people's lives change for the better. So does that sound like a fine plan? It sounds like a great plan. Thank <laughs> okay, you. Good. <laughs> All right. Well, then let's just start with. Um, well, start with where you thought you were going and then how things started to change. All righty, Carol. Thank you. And thank you for appreciating the journey because it certainly has been a unique journey. Um, in college, um, actually, it started even earlier. I started becoming a high achiever when I was probably in elementary school. And by junior high, I was getting straight A's, all through junior high and high school. And I was very active in activities and cheerleader and student council. Graduated valedictorian of my high school class of 1,500 kids, you know, and got voted most likely to succeed. So, you know, I was really on the achievement path, uh, and and uh, that was and I enjoyed it, and I'm grateful for that in my background. 
Um, then I went on to college. I went to UCLA, and I majored in math computer science, and I minored in modern dance. And I had no idea how much of an impact that minor was going to end up being in my life until I was much older. Uh, I loved dance. I loved modern dance. It was an opportunity to start exp- you know, expressing feelings freely. And uh, prior to that, I had really, I mean, or even in continuing, I really believed that um, my job was to be as perfect as I could be, that to be loved in, in life, my job was to be perfect. And so I really tried to achieve that in everything I did. Um, I met my first, uh, well, I should say I met my first husband back in high school when I was 15, and he was 17. And he was like the uh, high school jock and tall, dark, and handsome. So it was one of those perfect, you know, high school romances. Um, Neither of us drank or did drugs. Uh, There was a lot of, you know, great hopes and dreams in our lives. Uh, When when I graduated from college and he graduated and got his bachelor's, we got married. and, um, And then he went on and he went to dental school in San Francisco, and I went with him, of course, and I was working in the computer industry in Silicon Valley in its very early days. Mm. And all looked, was really good, really looked really good. Um, and we, uh, we graduated, he graduated from dental school, I say we, because I have my PhD, putting hubby through. And, um, and uh, we graduated, he graduated from dental school, and we came back to Southern California where he started a dental practice. And I, I continued in the computer industry in, in marketing and sales. Uh, but I also had continued dancing from college as a hobby, very serious hobby. And I very uh, auditioned for a local dance company, a modern and, uh, jazz and hip-hop company, and got into it. Um, and I continued to do that regularly as a very serious hobby. Um, so all everything looked quite good a, good, a good life. We bought a beautiful custom home on a hill. We got the bright red 911 Porsche. I got the, you know, <laughs> the metallic gray Beamer, you know. <laughs> and we were doing the Orange County um, success track. And I was grateful for it, too. Um, but what happened, something changed that I did not expect. During college, like many of us, we, you know, lots of kids drink and smoke pot in college or try it. Um, we had our uh, opportunity to try it. And he liked it, but uh, it was just, you know, something he did socially. He got into dental school with more stress, and then he would be at parties, and he would be the one that would be slumped down against the wall at the end of the party, a little bit too drunk, a little bit too stoned. But, you know, hey, he was very successful in school. Starting in dental school, parties in dental school? Yeah. It started actually in college, but he really got more serious in dental school just because of the stress level is what he said. Then we graduated when he became that professional, you know, dentist. Then he could um, add on a few easy prescription drugs, like Valium when he was stressed out, like Percodan painkiller because he was a jock and his muscles now would get sore, um, like a little nitrous oxide at, you know, at lunch and after work in his, you know, in his um huh. That was office. convenient. <laughs> you know, but, you know, he was a very intelligent guy. He was a very, very loved dentist. He was very concerned about his patient's well-being emotionally as well as dental-wise. Um, but the stress, you know, he kept saying the stress was great. The stress was great. You know, and the anxiety was high. So then he would add, he added, you know, very fine, expensive um, Napa Valley, California wines. You know, he'd open a pop of $50 bottle of wine and down it in an evening himself. Then he would use some pot. And I didn't recognize addiction. I didn't recognize alcoholism. I just saw a man that I just totally, dearly loved and adored ignoring me or saying, get out of my face, I'm tired, or wanting to turn on the TV and zone out, or now not even just saying, you know, just, just leave me alone. I just don't want to be bothered. Uh, or getting angry over trifles. 
And I thought somehow I was failing because I'd been on this achievement track. I thought I was my job, and I thought it was my capacity to fix the problems for the people I loved. Well, I tried really hard. I mean, I tried to be pretty enough and nice enough and smart enough, and I started taking on the financial parts of, the, of our family, like trying to plan retirement and get a, a rental property and work extra hours, so he only had to work four days a week. And still things got worse, and I didn't understand why. Well, then sadly, after we'd been married about, I'd say, 12, you know, maybe 11 years, he also was introduced to cocaine um, with professional people. And from the moment... What do you mean with professional people? Oh, airline pilots. Uh, there was another dentist. There were some uh, business business professionals. Achievement-oriented, capable, uh-huh. intelligent people who would snort cocaine at parties together. And then he would use it just because, you know, he felt tired and it, was, you know, it made him feel better. And once he added the cocaine to his repertoire of alcohol, prescription drugs, mm. uh, pot, within, immediately, within six months, he was like somebody I didn't know. He was really, really angry. He was really shaking. He was really touchy. He was really didn't want to express love, didn't want to talk to me, uh, became sexually, uh, you know, impotent, unavailable. I mean, it was just, it was like I had, lo- I had lost my best friend, and I had become suicidal, not knowing what I was doing wrong. And then one night, um, I mean, I literally, he, w- he would play video games for, for an entire weekend long and ignore me like I was just a piece of plaster on the wall. And here I was thinking that if I was good enough, smart enough, pretty enough, something enough, that, he, that I would be loved in the world, and it wasn't working. And um, I was driving to work the next day after that weekend just thinking I, I was keeping it all a secret because I thought somehow it had been my failure. And I turned on the radio, and I heard the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Addiction describing addiction and alcoholism, and I thought, oh, my gosh, that's what I'm dealing with. It's not that he doesn't love me. He's sick. Mm-hmm. And I called them, and they, they immediately, you know, put me on the right track to places where families of alcoholics could get help. And, um, and I began to go to support groups, and I began to uh, understand that I was dealing with a disease. Not a man that was bad or hated me, but a man that was incapable of loving because alcohol, drugs, cocaine had overridden all the intellect, all the love, all the capacity within that human being. And I, learned how to, I began to learn how to detach, with, slowly detach and say, it is his issue. I didn't cause it. I can't cure it. I can't control it. In the meantime, I was continuing to dance in my dance company, and um, and and now it also was teaching, and I, I was teaching at the local college. I actually became an, a professor in dance at our community college. Mm. Things I'm very proud of today. Um, did USO shows, Bob Hope USO shows locally along the Western United States, and you know all kinds of wonderful opportunities to at least get some of my sadness, grief, loss, hurt, all those feelings out. Well, then he, one night, uh, we were pretty estranged from each other, but I was learning not to take it all too personally and to be able to love the person but hate the behaviors. And he, was, um, um, he decided to self... I actually actually did get to a point where I did decide that I didn't want to stay uh, and be in, in the home while he was doing this to himself. And I chose to file for divorce. I moved out. And six months later, I got the phone call that he had been self-medicating for the flu and he took some painkiller he drank some alcohol and he snorted some cocaine. And in the middle of the night, at the age of 35, his heart stopped and he died. It's so tragic. It was extraordinarily painful. That was 20 years ago. And I must say, I lost the, definitely the great love of my life, up to that point in my life at least. And, 
you know, grief, I've learned a great deal about grief. I didn't, I, I can't tell you what that first next year was about. I was grieving over divorcing a person I dearly loved, mm-hmm. and then over his death, and I, I just remember driving along on a freeway and suddenly going, oh my gosh, my exit was 15 miles ago and I completely missed it. You well, know, you know, it, it must have, besides it being, you know, a tragedy in itself, certainly, um, it must have made you feel especially guilty because of it only being six months uh, since you left him. I mean, you must have... Um, uh, That's what people asking... would think, and I must tell you, I am forever grateful that for a year and a half before he died, before the divorce and he died, I had been in a support group for the families of alcoholics, where I had, and I used to go to open AA meetings to understand this disease, and I highly recommend that to anybody living with an alcoholic um, or an addict, go to an open Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and observe, because I could clearly, clearly see that there's a certain mindset there's a way of thinking that an alcoholic addict has, and it's different than mine. And I began to really realize he had a disease. I grieved greatly that he died from it. But I also, I know I can't cure cancer. I know I can't stop somebody from drinking or doing right. drugs. But when he died, I really didn't have great grief. I had anger that I didn't know I had. I did go into therapy for nine months. I didn't know I was so angry that he would kill himself with drugs and alcohol. Because I forgot that he couldn't stop it either, but I wanted him to. Mm-hmm. But I, it, it's really about understanding... This disease. Uh, but, I mean, didn't you wonder about um, that if you hadn't left and... Oh, uh, no. I, I hate to interrupt you. But I, I mean, if you had been there that night or that perhaps, you know, he was he was even more devastated because you left, surely you would have... That those kinds of questions would have come across your mind. They crossed my mind, but I would take them to my support environment and bring them uh-huh. up. And then I would hear again and again that um, I know today that it's that when it comes to an alcoholic and addict, there's no controlling it. I mean, I you, you can't chase them to enough bars. You can't take the keys away enough. You can't pour the alcohol or the drugs out enough. They will always find a way to do whatever it is they're going to do. So whether I was there or not there, it's I'm powerless over his actions. Um, had I been there, he wasn't talking to me. We weren't sleeping in the same room anymore. Um, I, I was... So you're thinking it's unlikely. I think it's. I mean, if it didn't happen then, it would have perhaps happened another time. Yes. I I just know that I really didn't have the power to control that man's life. I also knew the only power I did have was to save my life. And living around that was terribly disturbing and painful and agonizing to watch someone I loved killing themselves with drugs and alcohol, and also not being willing to accept love. That was the hardest. That was the hardest experience I had around the alcoholism, is not only would he not give me love, but he wouldn't even accept love, a kind word, a touch on the shoulder, a communication, a meal. He wanted, he had gone so much into the disease that he was a black hole. Now, for me to have stayed there would have been being, would have been like sacrificing my life for his. That's, That's not the way to deal with this disease. I've learned that. I thought, and I really truly think, my best hope for him to hit bottom and realize that he had a problem and needed to get mm-hmm. help was if I left. Mm-hmm. And that was my prayer, but it did not happen. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I'm sure you tried to get him to go to AA meetings. Oh, yes. And I've learned you cannot, it doesn't matter how much you nag, scold, complain, yell, be nice, be mean, write them letters, it would not influence his choice. <laughs> He would scream. He would finally yell at me and say, "Get out of my face! I don't have a problem with drugs and alcohol. The only problem I have is you. If you just get out of my face and leave me alone, I'd be fine." Then he'd throw shoes at me across the room, or he'd punch a hole in the wall with his fist. I learned to 
keep my mouth shut. Or I could have been hurt. I'm only five feet tall, 100 pounds. He was six foot two, 200 pound man. You, you learn quickly um, when you start to learn about the disease. Not to dominate, nag, scold, and complain. Interestingly enough, oops. Well, that's, that, that's the, uh, the hint that we actually have to take a break now. But when we come back, um, why don't you sort of segue that into uh, telling us about how that experience then set you on the path where you are now. Will do. Okay, my guest today uh, is Susie Vanderlip. We're talking about, well, <laughs> what we will eventually get to Teens in Turmoil. We're talking about how Susie Vanderlip got to Teens in Turmoil. Um, we know how she got from Turmoil in any case. And you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host. So stay tuned, um, and we will be, we'll be back. We, we will be back. Informative. Educational. Insightful. You're listening to VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rack and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. This week on the Dragon Page with Michael and Evo, we are finally bending to the will of our fans. David Eddings, master of fantasy, will be joining us to talk about his latest work, Crystal Gorge. And C.E. Murphy joins us after that to talk about Urban Shaman. We'll do the library segment, and I'll be feeding the dragon this week on the Dragon Page with Michael and Evo. That's the Dragon Page, every Saturday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on voiceamerica.com. Continuing to be the authority in Internet Talk Radio, you're listening to VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have questions or comments for Dr. Carol, call toll-free at 1-888-335-5204. Now let's get back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest today is Susie Vanderlip. She's the author of uh, 52 Ways to Protect Your Teen. And um, she's also an example of someone who um, whose life took a different path than, we, uh, than she expected. Uh, voted most likely to succeed in high school, starting on what seemed to be a Ken and Barbie life. <laughs> Until uh, the tragedy of of her husband becoming an addict, an alcoholic, an addict, and uh, 
and ultimately killing himself. Okay, and from from there we can only go up. All right, that's exactly <laughs> right. Well said. So go ahead. Well, eight years. Certainly, I was working from that point on. After he died, I said, and after the divorce, I said, I need to not make decisions quickly in my life. I need to understand what was going on in me emotionally, self-esteem wise, that I would be in this in this circumstance, and and how to make. I wanted to learn how to make good choices in a different from a different point of view. So I really focused on emotional and spiritual growth and healing from a wide variety of, of opportunities and perspectives. And I kept dancing because dancing was always very healing for me. Um, I also met my current husband shortly in that period of time, who is a clinical psychologist, for which I'm, he was not my psychologist. That's not legal, so don't think that. <laughs> but a very kind and understanding and non-drinking and non-drug-using human being. And uh, we eventually, you know, we got married and... Um, that was a strong point in my life. But in addition, I continued to dance, as I mentioned. So I went in the dance studio now, eight years after my first husband died. And I was still well, Wait, could you clarify that? How, how long after your first husband died did you marry your second husband? Um, it was actually within months. We met and married quickly. And it's something that I think is amazing. I do believe there's a God in this world who is looking out for us because I was grieving during the first three years of, year to three years of our marriage. But I learned not to hold my husband, Ken, who I married to today, responsible for my grief or my feelings. I knew to take my feelings to therapy, to the support environment, to places so that I could come home and be a whole, much more whole human being. And uh, I was So, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> so after, how many months after your first husband died did you meet your, the man who then became... I actually met him after I separated from my first husband. So I was, see, you know, I was, he was a friend of mine during that period of time. So uh-huh. it was really not very long afterwards, which I consider a great gift in my life. I am grateful. I feel as though um, God put somebody in my life to help me see, see me through the difficult tra- transition, um, mm-hmm. grieving period of my life. But as I say, he was not my therapist. He was a husband. And I'd learned from my first husband that... Uh, not to make my second husband my God. I believe mm-hmm. I met my first husband so young. I came, became so attached. I wanted him to be the answer to my self-esteem. Mm-hmm. I learned in the support. I learned. I'm grateful I had an alcoholic in my life because it got me into an environment of learning how to create my own happiness and to look at a marriage as a partnership. I wanted a partner in the things of my life, but not somebody who who was the answer to my to why I had thought, sought to be perfect. I learned I didn't have to be perfect to be loved anymore. I learned that in the support groups for families of alcoholics, I wouldn't have learned that without having gone through the tragedy, that I no longer had to seek perfection or even seek um, all of the social status symbols of the world. What I really wanted to seek was a sense of peace and serenity, joy, um, satis- just fulfillment. So that's what I started on a journey um, as, right, and right, that's the journey I was on, and um, and I and I, I looked at life from a different point of view. So eight years after he died, my first husband died. I went into the dance studio, and I was choreographing something on relationship, and out came some angsty material about what it's like to be to love an alcoholic addict. You love them, you desire them, and you're also repulsed and can't stand them. And then I started waking up in the middle of the night and having monologues, kind of just. 
people talking in my head that I'd heard at open AA meetings and their families of alcoholics and the pain. And I started writing it down like people telling their story. And then um, I put it together and I shared it um, at an art festival in Costa Mesa, California, and people came out of the woodwork to say, oh, my God, that touched me. And I thought, God's trying to tell me something here. And I went to a support group meeting and I said, I feel like God is you know, pushing this creativity through me and I don't know why, and it kind of scares me. And a woman came up to me and she said, I think God is talking to you and I'm a counselor at a high school, so I'm going to hire you to do this for 800 kids in Red Ribbon Week. So you have to finish it and it has to be good or I'll lose my job. (laughs) And the next four months, I really spent making it a professional piece. And I premiered it in front of these 800 kids. And wait, could you describe what what the it is? Oh, what it was. (laughs) Oh, yeah, it was eight different characters. Um, and I morphed from one character into the next all on stage. And they were all characters coming from alcoholic, addictive, abusive, neglectful kind of family circumstances. They were basically teenagers and a few adult characters who were feeling hopeless. And out of their hopelessness, there some were going joining gangs, some were having sexual encounters, some were using drugs and alcohol themselves, some were cutting on themselves, some were... And I knew that hopelessness. That's mm. what I'd experienced with my first husband. I understood that hopelessness, and the kids came up to the stage, like 50 to to 70 kids came up to the stage afterwards to say, I never knew anybody understood how I feel. Mm. I never knew any, I thought I was the only one. And I sat down and I held a support group with 50 kids, trying to explain to them the disease of alcoholism because they all came from families with a parent who had a drinking problem or a drug problem or had been children of alcoholics, their grandparents had been alcoholics or addicts, and their parents were now crazy people trying to, to be perfect and control and make everything perfect, you know, to can over expect, ex, uh, expectations of their kids that were just causing the kids to feel suicidal. And I knew immediately that the reason God had given me all that life experience was to reach kids in their teens at that vulnerable early grade six on up age when maybe they could understand what was, if they were feeling hopeless or they were having self-loathing or they were feeling they weren't lovable or they were feeling... You know, all these feelings, and so they could understand how they were mo- could, could so desperately motivate choices that were dangerous. Um, because I know I fell in love with my alcoholic. I just became connected with him, you know, just, you know, just like glue at 15. Neither of my parents were alcoholics. But my dad didn't say I love you growing up. My dad was emotionally removed. Uh, you know, I was go- I was just going to ask yeah, you about yeah. that. Amazing that, um, how it- something so small as that, but so crucial. Well, that yeah. uh, was he. Is he still alive? Your father? My dad passed away about six years ago, and mm-hmm. my relationship with him healed in our later years. But early mm-hmm. on, I was kind of afraid of my dad, or I'd get in arguments with my dad, or I felt like, you know, he always thought my, my, my opinions were stupid and I wanted him to be proud of me. I thought I was supposed to be a boy when I was born, and he, would, he had four girls, no sons. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a funny little assumptions that we make as a child coupled with a parent who has a difficult time showing affection. Yeah. I tell people that I, even from childhood I had a disease. I call it ADD, but I mean affection deficit disorder. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and we're probably going to, um, there's probably going to be a break in a couple of minutes, but let me just tell you, as you were talking, I was thinking about how, um, well, Pete, actually, I, I've written a book, as you may know, called Bad Boys, Why We Love Them, How to Live With Them, and When to Leave Them. Yes. And uh, the kind of woman, I talk about 12 different types of bad boys, 
and uh, you know everything from from uh, the frazzled frog, who's a guy who hasn't grown up and and um, and actually usually has an at least one addiction, um, to a guy who you know is is uh, physically abusive to a woman. Twelve different types of men, bad boys, but there are also twelve different types of women. Each one being attracted. Yeah. to um, each of these types. And the type that is attracted to the bad boy, that's the frazzled frog addict, um, is the woman whose father was either emotionally or physically not pr- not present in her childhood. You uh, it and, right. And because what she's doing is looking for a man who she hopes will become addicted to her, the man who will be least likely to leave her. I think that's a very very true in my case as well. I would say that's a good assessment. Okay. Well, luckily, not who I am today, thank God. (laughs) Well, there's always always growth. When we come back, we'll hear more about this. I am fascinated to know about what some of the people um, come up to you and ask about after these performances, and uh, and how that's been how that's been growing. My guest today is Susie Vanderlip. When we come back, we'll be talking more about this. Uh, teens in Turmoil, and uh, her book, 52 Ways to Protect Your Teen. I'm Dr. Carol Lieberman, your psychiatrist host, and you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. Bringing the world together. You're listening to America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships... Check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Are you feeling stuck in some part of your life? You might have some crust busting to do. Crust is anything that you think, feel, or believe that prevents you from living life full out. Step into the crust-free zone with me, Dr. Pat Basile, and get ready to do some serious crust-busting. Join us on Thursday mornings on voiceamerica.com at 8 a.m. Pacific Time for crust-busting your way to an awesome life. Do you know that over 70% of Americans with severe disabilities are unemployed? Are you one of the 2.5 million Americans with epilepsy? If you are or know someone struggling with these issues, tune in to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. On the show, Joyce will discuss these issues as well as others. She will have on nationally known guests that will offer helpful insight on disability matters and let you, the listener, call in with your questions and concerns. So if you struggle with a disability or know someone who does, listen to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. Heard every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time here on VoiceAmerica.com. Cutting edge. Challenging. Stimulating. You're listening to VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have questions or comments for Dr. Carol, call toll-free at 1-888-335-5204. Now let's get back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. Just take some time to 
Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest today is Susie Vanderlip. We're talking about uh, ways to protect your teens and Susie's own journey um, from darkness into light and bringing light into other people's lives. So let's continue with that and and your um, legacy uh, program and how that's developed and what some of the things what some of the stories are that you've heard um, people tell you about and and um, what what you've been telling some of these people? Well, uh, what's happened since the, that very first uh, premier pro presentation of Legacy of Hope, that's the name of the program, um, I have now had 14 years of traveling to 47 states and across Canada and speaking to one million teens and parents, which to me is a total miracle. It's, such a, it's been such a gift in my life because... Um, Every time I go out, let's say, to a middle school or a high school and I do an assembly program or a parent program at night or speak at a conference, but particularly at middle schools and high schools, I stay all the rest of the day and the counselors in those schools will put me in a safe space, a place where it's private, and any student who wants to can come in and talk with me. And as a result, I've now spoken to 25,000 teenagers Mm. with troubled issues from, from, you name it, you name it. But what is consistent with every one of them is that emotionally we connected. Emotionally they related not only to my characters, but also I tell my own story of meeting the first husband at 15 and mm. 17 and through to his death and what it did to me emotionally living around this disease, thinking how it was somehow my fault and uh, and how I learned that it wasn't and how I learned how to, to do that growth, to take me from being that uh, that kind of girl that marries the frazzled frog. Well, well, you know, um, did your husband have, uh, your first husband have, have alcoholism in his family? He had a troubled childhood, and I, I, I'm going to leave it to be his private business, his family's yeah. business as to what that was about. But there was um, there were marriages and divorces and marriages and divorces and a father who died all by the time he was eight years old. Mm. And he never, ta- in the 15, 18 years I was with him, he talked about his father for about 15 minutes total. He refused to talk about anything that brought up a feeling of sadness or grief. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I tell the youth today that if we have wounds or sadness, grief or loss, uh, it will stay like shards of glass in our heart our entire life until we yeah. confront and deal with it. And that as you get older and become an adult with stress, it will become pussier and more stressful and try to push out. And when that happened with him, it just pushed him into reaching out to more and more stronger and, and uh, different drugs to try mm-hmm. to cover the feelings up. I, I consider myself basically I've been a student of emotions um, and how they motivate behavior. Um, I do never do not consider myself a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I'm not there to heal the kids. I'm there to create awareness and intervention to mm-hmm. get them to the pros who can really help them process those feelings. Um, and w- and what pros do you try to get them into? Primarily AA or are there special oh. programs or? Bless the school counselors of the world. Um, I usually, you know, I'm usually go into schools where um, a school counselor has seen me uh, at a counseling association conference or someplace and says, "I want to make change in my school," and they will bring me in and I will do my assembly, and then we will also survey the kids with this one-page survey we have on my website called Survey of Hope. It asks the kids to tell us, "Would you be helped by a support group for your drinking or drug use?" because somebody else's drinking or drug use bothers you, parents, siblings, or friends, because you're feeling depressed, suicidal, cutting on yourself full of anger or rage, or overly stressed, and give us your name if you want to be in a support group for any one of these reasons. And Mm -hmm. the statistics we've accumulated are mind-boggling. 
and, and number of kids who are we having... We will get. I have, I have surveys where 40% of your 10th graders say they're depressed in middle-class white America. I have kids who are in 8th grade will get 20% of the kids say they felt suicidal. Mm-hmm. Um, you ask me, the kids who come up to me... So the book that I wrote, 52 Ways to Protect Your Teen, Guiding Teens to Good Choices and Success, it not only shares my whole story and journey in it, but it shares conversations with the teenagers I've had. It shares what they're feeling. It shares where it comes from, and it shares how you as a parent can talk to them in a way that makes it safe for them to reveal these shards of glass in their heart because it is those very emotional shards of glass that motivate them to go to drugs, to alcohol, to sex, to violence, to self-harm, to suicide. And they've told me, 25,000 kids have made it clear. You ask me, what do they come up and tell me? Well... Four days ago, I was in a, a pretty middle-class America middle school, and I did an assembly for the sixth graders, a separate one for the seventh, and then a separate for the eighth graders. Later that, oh, that uh, two days, I did one for the parents so we could tell them what we'd learned from the kids, from the survey and from my conversation. Uh-huh. Kids came up, 50 sixth graders came up to me, the most precious, adorable-looking sixth graders you've seen in your life. And they were telling me, they, they were telling me, well... I feel like I, I sometimes cut on myself and they show you the little scars on their on their mm. upper arm or their legs. Or, yeah, I've been thinking about wanting to kill myself. Um, or, you know, um, I, I, you know my, because my, my, my mom and dad divorced and my dad was an addict and he went to prison and now my mom has um, a boyfriend and he drinks and, and, um, and he's mean to me and my own real dad, I never get to see him. My own real dad, I never get to see him, is the, one of the deepest wounds a child can have. Mm-hmm. There's a dad out there, I tell you, if there is a dad out there who has been in prison, been an alcoholic, an addict, I don't care what you've done to that family, please connect with your kids and just say, I love you. Teenagers do what I call re-grieve. They, that dad might have disappeared the day they were born, or he might have, they might have, parents might have divorced when the kids were three or five or ten. But when they hit 11 or 12 and their cortex starts to grow and they suddenly have enough brain capacity to question who they are and who they want to be loved by, they will deeply grieve that that dad or that mom, but it happens more often that it's the dad, is maybe he's remarried and gone to you know, another state and they, don't, you know, they never see him. Or when they do get to see that dad that, that's, you know, out, that, that they, you know, they hardly get to see, he's so busy working they never spend time together. Mm-hmm. These teenagers from 11 and 12 to 15, they grieve so heavily on that, and they think it's their fault that they are not lovable, that it's all their fault, and they become hopeless. And then they cut on themselves. And then they get anorexia. And then they use alcohol or drugs. And then they find some little boy that, you know, some 17-year-old boy that is, you know, given given, a a hit on a little 12-year-old girl, and they'll have sex with him because they're just like I was as a little kid, desperate to be loved. Mm-hmm. But at least I was, I was only emotionally abandoned by my dad. But physical and emotional abandonment is the most severe wound you can do to one of these kids. That I've Some of these kids, they've been abused, physically abused. Some of them have been molested, which is also severe. But it is the emotional damage that stays with them. I have kids. Yes, I, I, I agree with that. It's I, huge. Um, and America is in, I, I almost called my book A Nation in Denial. Mm-hmm. But I knew people wouldn't buy that. <laughs> it's a kind book. My book is not blaming parents. I, I do want you to know. It's really giving you some positive, hopeful suggestions. But we, parents, so many parents also carry around their childhood wounds still. And I know it's painful. It's scary. In a, in a life where you're just worrying about paying the bills or trying to get over having had a divorce or maybe two divorces or 
And then I have kids who tell me, I find this a lot in the Hispanic culture where the kids have, you know, seven or eight brothers and sisters, or the parents divorced and now they have 15 stepbrothers and regular brothers and sisters. And these kids who are in seventh, eighth, ninth grade, they feel so alone. They feel so lonely, so invisible, like they don't matter. And that is a perfect child to get get pregnant. That's a perfect child to get into a gang. That's a perfect child to need to find family where somebody takes the time to listen to them. So the books give suggestions. How do you help that child? Well, well, let me go back to something you said. When you were talking about the, the, the children who come up to you and talk about cutting on themselves or talk, talk about um, wanting to kill themselves, what do you do? I mean, it's one thing when someone is thinking about drinking or has already started drinking. It's another thing when they're telling you that they're suicidal. What do you do? It's actually not very difficult to reach that child at all. Well, what I mean is... Uh, I mean, that's sort of a more urgent kind of situation to let let someone know about. Well, of course. Um, The first thing I do is I spend plenty of time talking to that child, giving them a chance to share their story. They may have never had an adult in their entire life hear their story and hear the pain attached to that story. And they know I understand that pain because they've seen my assembly and I've told them my story. So a bond of trust exists. Yes. Then I begin, I always ask them to tell me about their parents and their grandparents. Did, did any of them drink heavily, use drugs, were, were physically abusive or, of, or verbally abusive? It, I will tell you from my experience, 100% of the time there is an issue in the family. 100% mm-hmm. of the time. Right. There has been some, some you know, of those problems. So then I can begin to explain to them, when you feel like cutting, when you feel suicidal, it's because you feel unloved, but you've got a family that's probably emotionally handicapped. They've been emotionally, they're emotionally incapable of showing you the kind of love that you really want and need. So the key is to go to the place where you can get healthy love. Not love where some guy's gonna, you know, use, want you for sex. Not love where some friends want to use drugs and alcohol with them to be one of the gang. Healthy love, which is, starts with an adult who understands feelings and can listen to you the way I'm listening to you. So we're talking about getting you to go to the school counselor or the school psychologist. So put your name on this list or walk with me right now. If they're suicidal, of course, I immediately walk them to the school counselor's office. We connect them right away to mental health professionals. But these kids, you would not believe the change on their face the minute they realize when their story is out and they also realize that they may actually just be reacting to an alcoholic or an addict or an angeraholic, somebody in their family that is emotionally sick and Mm -hmm. that it wasn't their fault. You will see a little child whose face looks totally hopeless or depressed, look free of the pain, look happy, look hopeful, look, wow, I can have a life. That's perfect timing. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Um, Because there's so much shame and and, uh, so many bad feelings that they have that they really... uh, are afraid to come out and talk about these things because if it is their fault, and then they expect you to blame them for it. Yeah, exactly. Well, we do have to take a break. Um, my guest is Susie Vanderlip. She's the author of 52 Ways to Protect Your Teen. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Bringing the world together. You're listening to America's Voice. 
VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Go beyond success and discover a deeper meaning to life. Join host Jeffrey Gitterman and his guests, the premier thought leaders in business, politics, science, spirituality, and culture, who have reached the pinnacle of financial and professional attainment in their fields, only to discover a profound lack of fulfillment with what our culture defines as success. So won't you tune in every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific time to Jeffrey Gitterman and Beyond Success, redefining the meaning of prosperity, right here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. You want the truth? Face the facts. This is VoiceAmerica.com. Depend on it. Hello, this is Rory Garay, president of Greyhound Pets of America and host of Greyhounds Made Great Pets on Voice America. Join me every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern for an insightful and enjoyable talk about one of man's best friends, the Greyhound. Learn about the history of the Greyhound. Discuss proper obedience and training techniques. And find out more about the Greyhound racing industry and what they are doing to help the adoption effort of the former race dog. If you own a Greyhound or just love dogs like I do, join me for Greyhounds Make Great Pets every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific, right here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. The world leader in Internet talk radio. Internet talk radio. You're listening to America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have questions or comments for Dr. Carol, call toll-free at 1-888-335-5204. Now let's get back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest today is Susie Vanderlip. She's the author of 52 Ways to Protect Your Teen. Um, You know, I'm sure with all these thousands of people... Children, teens that you've talked to after your performance, Legacy of Hope, um, and some of their stories you do include in their in your book, which is very interesting. But it must um, it must be very gratifying, and at the same time, it must be also rather horrifying that there are so many so many teens in in trouble out there, so many children in trouble out there, so many wounded um, children and, and teens whose parents are just so oblivious to all the pain that they're going through. You couldn't have described it better. And and speaking to what you said earlier, and I want to thank you, by the way, for your compassionate approach because because you've you've allowed me to to share how passionate I am about this. Um, anybody who does devote your life to follow a path of helping others to heal, I get re-impassioned on a, every single time I'm I'm working with with the kids because when they do come out, it is so. Cl- Uh, I think we lost my guest. Susie, are you there? 
Well, let's uh, hope that Voice America gets Susie back on the line and uh, reconnects her or that she'll call. Well, no, she can't call back in, so if you're listening, someone in the tech department, please call my guest back. In the meantime, I will go on um, talking about, on my own soapbox, about how sad it is that um, part of the problem is that, that as parents, so many parents feel as though their dreams have not yet been realized, that um, maybe they got married really early or maybe they um, were working for many years on a career that then they now are tired of or don't find as fulfilling or, you know, there are so many different uh, possible scenarios. But the bottom line is that for so many parents, um, they're feeling as, as though, well, wait, wait, I haven't had my time in the sun yet. And that causes them to be a little self-preoccupied, not to mention, of course, having to work and having to make enough money to support their family, but running out of time. And so many times um, what gets lost in this process is children, um, children and teens who who are not sharing how um, lonely they're feeling or hurt they're feeling. And um, when parents are so absorbed in their own lives and not paying enough attention, not asking the right questions, um, it just is these two or or more or the, the various people in the family go on their own path and don't even uh, connect with each other on an emotional level. It just kind of becomes habit. Everybody eats at different times. So few families. I mean, one of the problems in this country, and I, not just in this country, I guess um, somewhat all over the world, but I think it's the worst in America, and that is um, that we we don't have dinner time anymore the way it used to be where families shared um, uh, with each other and, and talked about the day and talked about, you know, did you, how were your grades and, and um, how did, did you feel bad about your best friend uh, snubbing you at lunch and, and not inviting you to sit down at the table with the other people she was sitting with and on and on. Um, and everybody just kind of comes into the kitchen and grabs different food at different times and, and doesn't really connect. And it is so easy. And I, I think, you know, certainly as a psychiatrist, I've seen um, uh, situations where parents are, are shocked that um, their child could be, you know, the child makes a suicide attempt and the parents are shocked. I didn't know that, uh, <laughs> that so-and-so was feeling this bad. How, how could this have happened? And, you know, they're sort of going on in their lives and, and not realizing just how excluded or left behind their kids are feeling. And it really is more of a, this, this really is about the parents rather than it is about a child or even a teen because um, you cannot expect a child or a teen to be responsible for their own um emotional well-being. I mean, yes, at a point, they, that's part of growing up and that's what you have to learn to be able to do. But if you're being abused or if you're being even emotionally abused or if you're being neglected or if um, your parents have a number of children and aren't giving each one individualized attention, um, you know, they're, they're, it's just very easy, especially, especially today, when even for families who are the most cohesive and uh, the most loving and, um, you know, who eat dinner together every night and talk about their day, 
when you have to deal with the kinds of things that we each hear about in the news every day, that in itself is terrifying, and that is all the more reason why families need to huddle together and share and love and be affectionate and and uh, because because if if you don't have that kind of secure home base to come home to, with the increasing kinds of trauma that there are in the world, from terrorism to hurricanes and earthquakes to um, illnesses to you know it's just. Uh, I mean, you get up in the morning and read the newspaper, and and most people won't feel like they want to go back to bed. You know, like it's not safe to walk outside your door. Okay, thank you, <laughs> Susie. Welcome back. Let me just finish what I was saying here. <laughs> um, so, if I was just talking about how it's so important today not to have a more cohesive, loving family uh, more than ever before because of the kinds of things between terrorism and, and earthquakes and uh, hurricanes and you know just the things that there are every day in the news. If you don't have a loving, secure home base to come home to, then there's no place in the world that's safe for you. It's, of course you're going to feel hopeless because... Um, you know, if at home you're being terrorized or neglected, you know, abused or, or um, tr- treated as though you don't matter or, or feeling unloved, and, and plus you then have to walk outside your door and meet with the things that there are in the world, it's just, it's it's just excruciating. Yes, I think your description is totally accurate and, and very well said. Um, I do want people to know that the, the book, The 52 Ways to Protect Your Teen, addresses so many of the same issues that you talked about, but it also addresses them not just, like it's a book if you have, if you know somebody, you know that family where they're struggling, where there's um, maybe a single mom and you can see the kids starting to act out, or you see um, just issues. This is a great book to just share with them. It's very, very uh, non-threatening and 52 easy, quick chapters, and they'll read something in there and it may spark that awareness that you mentioned there, where parents are not Parents are often so busy and so overwhelmed by the world and the paying the bills that they don't realize that connection with their child isn't being made, and they don't realize that how how vulnerable that child is becoming. It's also a great book for somebody who has a great child. It's a great yeah. book for somebody who's got a five-year-old because it talks about how you connect. How do you make those connections? in fun, easy, warm ways. Um, and and I guess a key point is that if a parent were to uh, share this book with a child uh, or a teen, that um, just that act of showing that they care and that they do you know, want to know what's going on in the emotional life of their teen it will make a big difference. Oh, you bet. You absolutely. Now, um, is there some uh, website that you would like to give out for people to get more information on? Yes, thanks. I would. Uh, the book can be purchased at a website called www.waystoprotectyourteen.com. Interestingly enough. Interestingly enough. <laughs> okay, waystoprotectyourteen.com. Now, if you don't mind also mentioning, um, I would like to also encourage people, if you think what you that this is a, something that would be helpful to the teens in your community, Help me get this information about Legacy of Hope to schools. Help yes. me get this program so we well, can create that awareness for them. Yes. Where, how, if somebody has a school that they would like or an organization that they would like you to do that performance at, how do they contact you for that? It's www.legacyofhope.com, and that's <laughs> L-E-G-A-C-Y-O-F-H-O-P-E.com. And so they can send a uh, contact email through Absolutely. that. Absolutely. 
Well, I'd like to thank you very much for sharing your story and sharing um, what it is, how it, it was that it put you on this journey and the wonderful journey that you're on. It is, uh, boy, every every junior high school and high school should have your program. I mean, at least. Um, certainly, there are lots of audiences, but I mean, it, it, it just it just seems like you were doing a wonderful service by bringing this attention and by showing people that somebody does understand them and, and does care. Thanks, so Carol. thank you very much, Susie Vanderlip, for being a guest today. And uh, you've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch on voiceamerica.com, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.